0: and welcome to Top in Tech, Global Council's regular podcast looking at the latest news and views across the tech sector. My name is Connor Darcy. I am the Senior Practice Director at Global Council and I lead our global tech, media and telecoms team. This week we're going to be looking at two things. The first is that big news in tech policy, Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter. It's everything that everyone in the tech sector is talking about, you can't move from the tech pages in newspapers and online without mentions and thorough analysis of it. However, we would argue that many have not made the link between what's happening in the acquisition of Twitter and the policy and regulatory environment and the consequences that there will be. So I'm delighted today that I'll be joined by Agonma Wankwo, Senior Associate in our DC office, to talk through these regulatory and political implications as we see it. But not only that, Nagoma will set this against the backdrop of the U.S. midterm elections. And then the second half, we're going to go further afield than we have done to date, and we're going to talk through the growth of the tech sector in Southeast Asia. This is a region that is distinct in its political economy and its tech sector dynamics compared to our usual topics of the U.S. and Europe. Nicholas Lee, our senior associate in GC's Singapore office, is here to talk us through it and guide us through the discussion around Southeast Asian technology. So why don't we start, uh, Agoma, on the US side of things, although it's not quite a US issue as such, it's a sort of global issue, given Twitter's footprint around the world, but that acquisition by Elon Musk of Twitter. But before we dive into the, the intricacies of that, I just want to start with what happened last week. We had the US midterms. Now, we know At the time of recording, we don't have all the results in, but we have a pretty clear picture, I think, enough at least for us to have a discussion around it. So I'd like to get your initial views on what do the results mean for tech policy in DC? Are we more or less likely to see new tech laws as a result, or is it a bit of same and same as business as usual?
1: Yeah, so as you've mentioned, not all of the races of the midterms have been called. But right now, it looks like Republicans are likely to control the House of Representatives by a slim margin, while Democrats have managed to retain control of the Senate. Broadly speaking, now that we have a divided government for the first time under Biden's presidency, it's unlikely that we'll see legislation be passed that strays too far from the political center. But there is a bit of hope that even in this divided government that bipartisan compromises in the tech space will occur, especially around issues like data privacy and children's online safety. These are you know, areas that have had a lot of momentum in the current Congress, and we've seen interest from both the Democrat and Republican leaders in revisiting these areas in the next Congress. But with that said, I do think that legislation that is most likely to actually pass pass will be centered around national security and U.S. competition with China because this is an area where both parties are completely aligned. Uh, so bills having to do with the Chinese uh, science and technology advancements, intellectual property theft from U.S. companies, Data sharing with China and the use of uh, Chinese telecoms equipment in the U.S. will receive quite a bit of attention. I, I think that anti-China posturing is really proving to be a rallying point for lawmakers. But with all of that said, legislation tends to move quite slowly through Congress, so we can expect the Biden administration to rely more on federal agencies to advance tech policy. So. We will certainly see the FTC and the FCC continue to use their rulemaking authority and enforcement powers to really rein in big tech. But I do think that incoming Republican House Committee chairs will likely frustrate the Biden administration's efforts, despite the fact that there are areas of alignment between the tech policy objectives of the administration and House Republicans. And this will happen for a variety of reasons, including that many Republicans believe that uh, regulatory agencies are exceeding the statutory authority that they have been given by, by Congress. But ultimately, in the absence of federal legislation and limits on federal agencies, we will certainly see states continue to propose and pass tech legislation as they've been doing over the last few years.
0: So it's perhaps our conclusion then, Agomad, that tech tech policy in DC was not easy beforehand. The Biden administration wasn 't exactly passing a, you know a slew of new tech bills or at least congress wasn 't um, with the president to sign off but now that 's going to get a bit harder, so we probably aren 't going to see dramatic changes in the in the way in which uh, tech policy is working in d c but it 's going to get a little bit more steamied and stymied in um, in in Congress and that m- momentum that we saw prior to the elections in and around the Regulatory agencies is probably like to continue that they will be uh, where a lot of the action is over the next couple of years, and then into this situation comes Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter. Uh, before we go into the detail of what this might mean for policy and how um, how it's going to affect uh, existing political and regulatory debates, could you just give listeners a quick sense of how the political class in Washington D.C. have reacted to the takeover?
1: Yeah, I think that reactions to Elon's takeover of Twitter here in D.C. can largely be separated into two camps. There are the people who are concerned and there are the people who are celebrating. So the primary concern among people who are critical of Elon's acquisition is that he will relax content moderation standards on the site, essentially turning it into a haven for manipulation, hate speech, um, and the uncontrolled spread of mis- and disinformation and Elon has been quite public about how he views free speech and views Twitter as a public town square of sorts. And he has actually referred to himself as a free speech absolutist. And this does not entirely sit right with this group of people who are against having harmful speech on platforms, you know, regardless of its legality. And experts have warned that Elon's approach would, you know, open the floodgates to toxicity, abuse, you name it. Um, and this is largely what's what's been happening, especially given that half of Twitter's workforce has been laid off. So there are significantly less people to moderate all of this content. So that's the first side, the people who have concerns. Now on the other side, you have the individuals who are supportive of Elon's takeover of Twitter because they argue that Twitter has, you know, long censored their more conservative viewpoints. So Elon's commitment to free speech is playing well with with conservatives who believe that they have been unfairly censored in, in social media.
0: So if anything, Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter is going to further polarize Sentiment. Often, I would guess those people who are celebrating tend to fall more within the Republicans, and those who are concerned tend to fall more within Democrats. And him being aligned with that sort of free speech absolutist approach, which I suppose is more aligned with the Republican side of things, does rather politicize the debate uh, within Washington. So we have a lot of controversy, we have a lot of heated debate. But if we look at that point that you really majored on there around content moderation, we have this totemic uh, piece of legislation, Section 230, which barely a tech regulatory conversation in the US goes by without that being mentioned. Um, do you think that Elon Musk's takeover in any way affects where the Section 230 debate is um, in the sense of, is it, it could that accelerate reforms of Section 230, or is our understanding the same as before the takeover, that any changes to Section 230, which ultimately uh, give limited liability exemptions for uh, online services, i.e. Twitter isn't liable for what people say necessarily on uh, Twitter, is that reform of that still a long way off?
1: Yes. So I want to take a step back briefly. So Section 230, uh, the Communications Decency Act, which effectively removes, you know, accountability for major online platforms such as Twitter from the rhetoric and materials shared across their sites, is an issue that both parties don't like. Um, but they don't like it for very different reasons and have very different outcomes in mind. So Republicans want to scrap the Section 230 protections that social media platforms have um, that social media platforms have enjoyed for years because they believe that it will help in addressing what they view as anti-conservative bias. Now, on the flip side, Democrats are concerned that social media companies are not adequately incentivized to actually do a good job when policing their platforms for things like disinformation. And given this context, um, as you've already alluded to, Conan, I think that Elon's handling of Twitter's content moderation policies could actually intensify divisions between Republicans who want more content kept up and Democrats who, who want the opposite So there's going to be a lot of pressure on incoming committee chairs uh, to find common ground between Democrats and Republicans on Section 230, but I think that that's a very tall order. We could potentially see House Republicans try to remove legal protections for platforms when they take down um, constitutionally protected speech, but a bill with such a provision is unlikely to to pass the democratically controlled Senate, and even if it did, President Biden is, is quite likely to veto it. So, even though there's a lot of interest in reforming Section 230, realistic compromise probably isn't feasible for the incoming Congress. Now, what we are likely to see is both parties bring in Elon Musk for a congressional hearing. Democrats might try to hold a hearing on the company's efforts to combat misinformation and moderate harmful content, while Republicans might be interested in understanding Twitter's past practices, such as whether it censored posts from conservative politicians before um, the elections. And I think a lot of the tangible action on Social 230 will ultimately happen in the courts. But this has already been in motion prior to Elon's acquisition of Twitter. So increasingly, we are seeing the scope of Section 230's immunity come under fire in both the federal and district appellate courts as they are being you know, asked to interpret its limits. And now the Supreme Court has actually agreed to take on the issue with And with a very conservative court comprised of justices who are often textualists and one justice in particular who has clearly taken aim at the issue of immunity, I think social media platforms can expect the court's decision to really narrow the scope and interpretation of um, Section 230.
0: Interesting. So we're going to have a... Uh, We're going to have Musk hauled in front of a Senate committee or such like in the way that we saw Mark Zuckerberg uh, infamously uh, several years ago. And I'm sure uh, that will be a box office uh, media moment. But in terms of more tangible outcomes uh, for legislative reform, that remains quite up in the air, given those divisions that you've just outlined, both between Republicans and the Democrats, though we may see some legal moves that may change the situation. Indeed, I think probably our conclusion there if we look is the US going to see a an equivalent of the EU's Digital Services Act or the UK's Online Safety Bill. I think our conclusion at the moment is that that's quite unlikely in the short to medium term regardless of what uh, Elon Musk does or says but you never know. So let's look on to if that's not necessarily a practical short-term consequence of Musk's takeover of Twitter what are they? I mean we've seen moves by the FTC uh, to intervene on Twitter since he's taken over. So can you just explain, I mean, what is the FTC worried about what it is doing and what are the potential consequences of that?
1: So Twitter's actions have attracted the attention of the FTC, which is a commission that you do not want to raise alarm bells with. So last week, several key security and privacy executives resigned or were dismissed from Twitter, which puts the company at high risk of a data breach. And these resignations triggered a warning um, from the FTC, which they don't often do, because Twitter is under a consent decree with the agency. So if a company faces a major data breach or gets caught abusing users' privacy, the FTC is required by law to reach an agreement with the violating company to upgrade its privacy and security practices. Now, if that company violates that decree... Usually, um, with another major security incident, the FCC then has the power to find that company. So that's where we are. Now, back in May, the, the agency fined Twitter $150 million for violating their 2011 consent decree and issued a modified order. And per this modified order, a small team of senior executives are on the hook for making privacy and security decisions. And a senior executive has to certify compliance with the order on an annual basis with the FCC. So in short, the people who all quit are vital to executing this decree, but also per the modified order, the FCC can demand additional compliance reports documents and information from Twitter and can actually interview employees if those individuals agree to be interviewed. And hiding information from the FTC in any part of this process is actually classified as a federal crime. So with all of that said, I I should mention that the FTC has not publicly disclosed that they are launching an official investigation, Um, but I don't think that we should be surprised if it is announced. So things like privacy rulemaking can take the FTC a long time, years even, um, but they can move very quickly when it comes to enforcement. We saw that in September, FTC Chair Lena Khan told the Senate Judiciary Committee Subcommittee on Competition Policy, Antitrust, and Consumer Rights, that the agency intended to tighten up its enforcement practices against companies that treat its orders as suggestions. So Twitter is at high risk of facing millions in fines and strict limitations on how the company handles data, especially if they're rolling out new products without proper compliance checks. And this could have a massive effect on the company's ability to innovate, right? so. It'll certainly be interesting to see how all of this plays out, given that Elon Musk is not one to bow down to regulation. He has a history of flaunting regulatory agencies, and you know he's explicitly said that he doesn't respect the. SEC, for example, after he was fined $20 million for misleading Twitter investors. So I think that this represents a true test of the FTC's resolve in this area, because Musk clearly believes that he is above the law.
0: Yeah, so it's an interesting question, isn't it? The, what happens now in the compliance of a company like Twitter with the pre-existing regulatory frameworks, which they have to adhere to, which this is a this is an example of that, uh, or others that are evolving and coming into force. So the Digital Services Act in the EU uh, has not been tested. Uh, we don't quite know how that will be enforced. And clearly uh, there will be some scope for appealing the decisions that are taken under that legislation. Likewise, the UK's online safety bill isn't even law yet. And you can imagine the situation whereby a much more bullish uh, social media company led by a very bullish outspoken CEO like Elon Musk might look to test these frameworks and might look to challenge them in a way which probably up until this point, the rest of the sector uh, would have been a little less combative, uh, at least overtly combative uh, in their approach, where the trend has tended to be to work more with regulators and to build better relations, whether that's in the US, uh, Europe, or other parts of the world. So we're interested to see how that 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 plays out. Can we just look, we, we, we've sort of been progressively zooming in uh, to a more detailed conversation about what could or could not happen uh, with Musk and with Twitter and with their regulatory interactions. Could we just zoom back out and... Is there a broader implication here for the rest of the sector, for the rest of social media, or for the rest of sort of technology, consumer-facing technology platforms? I mean, is it something just as basic as to say that Twitter is now the main target for tech regulation rather than, say, Meta, which was probably top of the pile up until the point that Musk took over Twitter? Or do you think there's some wider policy implications or debates that have been drawn out from Musk's takeover?
1: Yeah, so I think that Twitter is front and center now because Elon's acquisition is still fairly recent and there have been so many major changes to the platform that, you know, are drawing attention, but I do think that once Elon finds his footing, if he ever does, we will see Twitter stop being the central focus. Uh, the company will still certainly be on the playing field because the next Congress is very interested in investigating the activities of big tech. But all of the heat won't solely be on them. But I do think that Elon's acquisition of Twitter raises a broader debate about ownership. There is now this question about whether it's okay for one private individual to own and make decisions about a platform that has a major impact on the speech and online safety of millions of people. I think that some could argue that Elon's acquisition um, can be interpreted in the same way as people buying newspaper companies in the sense that it's not quite profitable, but it is incredibly useful for influencing the political and social spheres. Should we let these tech billionaires be in charge of these so-called online public squares? Or do we need to think about social media platforms in the same way that we think about ownership issues in more conventional media channels? So, for example, media integrity in conventional media channels is at risk when only a small number of companies and individuals control the media market. And it can be argued that the same thing is happening on social media platforms. Uh, such concentration in ownership can really cause dangers to media pluralism and and diversity.
0: Yeah, I, in the UK, for instance, you in the broadcasting sector, you'll have rules around fit and proper tests to make sure that the owners of a broadcaster are suitable uh, for running a broadcaster uh, within the UK. Um, there is a question, and it's one that hasn't really come out, as you say, that up until this point, because the sector is so new, so nascent, there hasn't really been debate about who should own and run these things because typically it has been the founders uh, who have tended to lead these these companies, but that's obviously going to change and evolve. Previously, when wealthy people wanted to gain further influence, they tended to buy newspapers. I mean, we've seen that as recently as Jeff Bezos buying uh, the Washington Post. There's a question now of if you want to exert that influence more broadly in society and in politics and in business, uh, do 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 billionaires now buy social media platforms rather than newspapers? And that's something that we should scrutinize uh, more closely. Well, thanks, Agoma. Uh, that's been a great ride through where we think things stand in the US, but also more broadly around uh, the takeover of Twitter. And that's something obviously we're going to follow quite closely uh, over the coming months. I suspect, should Elon Musk be hauled in front of uh, a congressional uh, hearing of some description, uh, we will be paying close attention as we'll many of you listening today so let's move on Uh, as i said at the start of the podcast we want to take a look uh, for the first time on our podcast series into uh, issues and the political dynamics but also the market dynamics in other parts of the world that we haven't followed so closely so we've been very eurocentric we've been very us-centric it's time to time to branch out there and actually demonstrate some of the wider expertise within global council and we have a very strong uh, team in Singapore of whom is represented today is Nicholas Lee, who leads on tech policy issues uh, in our Singapore office. So let's get stuck in, Nicholas. Before we go into that detail around the tech scene and also tech regulation, for the benefit of listeners, can you just give a quick pen portrait of Southeast Asia for the ASEAN region, how it, how it shapes up, how it may contrast or not uh, with some of the markets perhaps our listeners are more familiar with in Europe or the US? Sure, happy to. Thanks,
2: Conan. So, quick background about myself. I was born in Singapore and pretty much spent most of my life here, though I have, of course, traveled pretty extensively across the different countries in Southeast Asia. To many people outside of the region, Southeast Asia seems to be this large archipelago block that is home to numerous different languages and political systems and even different economies, I would say. And Largely, I would say that I agree. Um, it's quite true. Southeast Asia is home to about seven hundred million people, or about eight to nine percent of the world's population. Ten of the eleven countries in Southeast Asia is part of ASEAN, which stands for the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. is a regional grouping that aims to promote economic and security cooperation among its members, and. When people generally refer to Southeast Asia or or ASEAN, they usually refer to um, ASEAN six or the top six countries in Southeast Asia, which collectively contribute to a large majority of the overall GDP in this region, or about 95%. Aside from Singapore, which is pretty much considered a developed market, the other markets in this region are pretty much classified as emerging markets. So when it comes to Political system that also varies quite differently across the different countries at one end of the spectrum you have i would say Vietnam which is run by the Vietnamese Communist party um, on the far end of course you have um, the democracy like Political systems in Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia. Somewhere I would say in the middle, you do have a country like Thailand, which at a certain point in history is being run by the military through the military coup, and it's also currently run by uh, the military-backed coalition party. And economy-wise, it also is quite drastic. For a country like Singapore, for example, the per capita income is around seventy thousand. US dollars. Whereas if you look at a country like Vietnam, that's closer to 4,000 US dollars. So it's a really big difference.
0: So thanks Nicholas. We've got a really sort of vivid picture there of a variety of economic situations. You have some very rich countries like Singapore, but also other markets like Vietnam that, that very much aren't. You have uh, You have sort of different ways in which those countries have their geography there's lots of rural and isolated areas and different islands in a way that you don't really get in places like Europe and the u.s to that extent um, and you have a whole range of different political systems there um, obviously you have more autocratic systems like described in Vietnam but we have a blending of and a variety of political systems uh, that are to certain different degrees democratic so the situation is very different to what we normally are discussing here where oh where it's uh, predominantly talking about uh, Western uh, democracies. So it's a it's an extremely dynamic and fast growing region, but could you now take us into what does that look like for the Southeast Asian tech scene, and how has that changed over the years? I mean, my automatic assumption, in my ignorance here, is that everywhere is sort of the same. We've grown used in Europe, at least, to US tech dominating all, and then in recent years, Chinese tech giving them a bit of competition at the margins. Um, I mean, to make a very glib point, given the ASEAN region is a bit closer to China, does that mean that it's, a, it's quite similar to what I've just described in Europe, but with a bit more of a Chinese tech flavor, or is there something altogether different?
2: Right. So I guess taking a step back first to observe how the region has changed from a tech perspective, pre-COVID to post-COVID. So broadly, the pandemic has greatly shaped how the tech landscape evolved and it has changed how consumer behaviors in the region um, has um, changed where people started to adopt more digitalized solutions. And there is indeed this, I would say, step change in digital adoption and attitudes around openness to tech solutions and platforms. So for example, pre-COVID, about 30% of internet users um, uh, have, have used food delivery apps before. As of first half of 2022, that number is 81%. So from 30% jumping to 81%. So it's quite a huge jump um, in the past two years. And this, and there is a similar trend for other verticals like right healing or even video on demand. So due to this pandemic, many users in the region have been driven online for the first time largely not because of choice, but because there's really a lack of other alternatives when you are pretty much stuck at home in pretty much stringent lockdown as compared to of course the West. Um, The lockdown here tend to be longer and harsher, I would say, right? And because of this, we have seen this large wave of tech companies that have benefited from this digitalization trend. As I mentioned earlier, such as food delivery in the e-commerce space, as well as gaming platforms. And of course, you mentioned earlier the big global techs. That's true. The more, I would say, traditional global heavyweights like Instagram, Netflix, or TikTok, they all have benefited and they continue to lead in their respective, I would say, niche on vertical. But On the other hand, there are also strong regional players um, in other different verticals that dominate. But fast forward to now, of course, things have pretty much, I would say, returned to um, pre-pandemic levels in terms of restrictions have mostly ease if you look at data by google mobility which tracks data related to places such as shopping centers restaurants and theaters it has shown that people are in fact already heading out more than what they did during uh, before the pandemic so overall there's this pretty unique outcome in this region where there exists both chinese back players backed by the likes of Tencent and Alibaba. So many of these Chinese-backed players have invested in e-payment, uh, e-wallets-related startups, as well as even e-commerce businesses. And together with very regional players like C Group or even Grab, they are backed by more, I would say, Western uh, funds. So they are coexisting together with the big tech players like Facebook, WhatsApp, uh, Netflix. And as a result, it's, it's pretty much a very different landscape from what you see in Europe or China.
0: So that's very interesting. I suspect uh, some European listeners will be feeling slightly envious about the way in which the region has managed to, within that mix of US and Chinese competition, that strong local players have managed to emerge and play a leading role in the development of the local tech sector. Something we haven't quite seen in the same way uh, in Europe, where it's tended to be US players that have, have dominated the market. Let's go back to that in a second, but I just want to draw out a little bit more around this this sort of a region squeeze between China and the US. And obviously we have this whole tech decoupling uh, going on. Uh, most recently we've seen, and agoma has been following this extremely closely as a view from the other perspective, Nicholas, around the restrictions that the US has imposed on semiconductor uh, elements to uh, China, um, the latest in a wave of uh, decoupling strains and tensions in tech relations between China and the US. How does that look in the ASEAN, Southeast Asian region, whatever we want to to, to label it? Um, have you seen? I don't know. For example, attempts to limit the influence of companies like Huawei or ZTE, or have you seen other measures that where where the region has been squeezed between pressure from those two superpowers?
2: Yep. so I would say that broadly, the ASEAN countries have really remained pretty neutral. Um, As described earlier, there's this range of, I would say, political spectrum. So there isn't particularly um, leaning one end or to the other end. And as a result, I would say that the region has pretty much been a net beneficiary of this decoupling between China and US. And the rising tensions between both of these superpowers have, in fact, benefited ASEAN. So a bit of background, both of these superpowers are really important to the region. China is ASEAN's largest trading partner and the second largest source of foreign direct investment or FDI. While on the other hand, US is the largest source of FDI. So in fact, just a few days ago, ASEAN and China has officially launched negotiations for the upgrade of the ASEAN-China free trade area while Biden also reiterated US support for a comprehensive strategic partnership. So signaling that both superpowers are pretty much quite invested in this region. And you mentioned earlier, the latest restrictive measures on semiconductors and high-tech equipment from imposed by US on China would mean that many firms uh, in the chip industries especially are looking to expand out of China. So as a result, Southeast Asia Uh, becomes a pretty exciting place for many of these firms. Countries like Thailand, Malaysia, Vietnam have benefited from supply chain um, disruptions, I would say, or rather uh, a realignment of supply chain where many of these semiconductor chip industry and high-tech manufacturers have set up production facilities in these countries. So to give some examples, for example, Foxconn is looking to build an electric car plant in Thailand and a chip production facility in Malaysia. Intel, on the other hand, will invest more than $7 billion to build a new chip packaging and testing factory in Malaysia. And Samsung from Korea is increasing its chip making capabilities in Vietnam. So on the second part of your question, on Huawei and ZTE, so both of them have actually been quite active in the region, I would say. Uh, to my knowledge, none of them are um, banned in the region, but of course in certain countries, um, they, tend to be, they tend to err on the side of caution and tend not to partner with Huawei on ZACTE. For example, ZACTE is playing a really important role in upgrading Thailand's 5G network, and Huawei is doing the same in Indonesia. And even in Indonesia, Huawei is playing an even more, I would say, invested role, it's working closely in the public sector, even partners with university to train um, the next, uh, the new generation of engineers. They have been educating public officials on the benefits of 5G, for example. So there isn't a per se of a technology transfer. Hardware is still being manufactured in, in China, but there is what you call a knowledge transfer. I think that's really uh, interesting for the region because countries here, ultimately will take a pragmatic approach and try not to take sides when evaluating these different developments.
0: So it's interesting. I, I, I was struck when you started speaking about most countries in the region taking a neutral approach. And I think there's a broader issue here about whether neutrality is sustainable. I'm not talking in a more defensive foreign policy way. I'm talking sort of tech. Politics and geopolitics, but whether that neutrality is sustainable in the long term. And I think we will see with the tech uh, and the trade and tech council, uh, which is meeting uh, in Washington between the EU and the US at the start of December, there's clearly increasing pressure from the US side to not only prompt Europe into more restrictions uh, towards China but also to come up with a coordinated system between Europe and the US to pressure other com- countries around the world uh, whether that's on the use of ai and chinese ai or whether that's around the use of huawei and zte so it's interesting to see whether that will play out and the extent to which um the us um yeah you know, to a lesser extent europe might try to pressure the the region around those sorts of issues and likewise Will there be a Chinese counter reaction if suddenly half their supply chain decamps to Southeast Asia? I suspect uh, they won't be delighted. So anyway, going back to that issue, broadly speaking, the region has benefited from decoupling. It's also just benefited generally from uh, being able to develop and sustain major local competitors in the tech sector over the past past uh, decade or so. Um one thing that does strike me though as we as we talk about companies say Grab or C Group or others who are very successful in the region, is that I don't see many many of them entering Europe. Or I don't know if Goma has views, but whether they are many are entering the US market, they're not that visible. Uh what what's happening there? Are they are they expanding much internationally or is their growth primarily within the Southeast Asian region?
2: Sure. So I mean the short answer to that is their focus is still largely within Southeast Asia. Of course, C-Group, through its e-commerce platform, Shopee, has tried and tested its expansion to various markets in in Europe, as well as LATEM, but has since pulled back from many of these markets given um, the limited resource and given the correction in the overall tech landscape. But broadly, the economic opportunity and potential in the region is so huge and it still remains relatively underpenetrated. As such, many of these local, regional, type of tech platforms, tech startups, they they want to focus in this region and they dedicate their time and effort towards the largest country in this region, which is Indonesia, where there are close to 300 million people, right? And they spend a lot of time to optimize their platforms and offering to cater to the locals in different markets. So many of these, I would say, consumer internet platforms, they are very labor intensive um you, you require a large army of um operation team to manage for example the merchants or the drivers or partners. You need to run the logistics operations, you need to ensure consumer satisfaction, you need to handle consumer complaints, for example. So it's very labour intensive, there's a very large um operation driven type of uh, business and they're generally not asset like and tasks not easy to scale to markets like uh Europe or US, right? Where there are various other players in these different verticals or similar verticals as well. So many of these players, they spend a lot of time to, I would say, hyper-localize their offering in different markets. So it's not simply to just translate their app into a local language, but to really understand what are the, some of the differences and nuances in the local culture, for example, when it comes to marketing event, you you invest in the correct marketing uh, campaign, correct, you, you use the, for example, use the right local celebrities, um, you un- you understand what uh, the culture nuances are. So many of them focus on really optimizing their platform to suit the locals here. But that being said, um, we have seen that um, historically there is a lack of pretty much asset-like software type startup, the SaaS business in this region due to the low digital pen- penetration. But I've been seeing more and more of, such, of this startup lately. And I mean, in the medium term, I mean, after the, after the tech winter uh, has gone past, we could potentially see many of these new asset-like companies looking to expand to US and or, or even into Europe.
0: So perhaps we'll see these, what are household names in Southeast Asia, potentially becoming household names uh, in markets, perhaps Godmer and I are more familiar with in Europe and the US. But at the moment, sounds like what you're saying is that there is plenty of opportunity, particularly with such a young demographic across many of the markets uh, in Southeast Asia, not all, but but quite a few of them, uh, for those companies to continue expanding and a market opportunity that they're doing quite well with at the moment. And then they will potentially turn to that more international expansion. Okay, so let's let's just finalize here, have a final question, Nicholas, just on regulation. Um clearly it's, as we've talked about it's a very diverse region uh, with many different political systems and clearly many different regulatory systems so it's going to be hard to hard to generalize here but how and how does this shape uh, the regulation of the tech sector presumably the regulatory approach of a country like vietnam is totally different to say somewhere like singapore or a large democracy like indonesia you're right that the approach has been
2: quite varied across the different markets and also largely driven by different priorities of different countries, I would say. So, very broadly, the pandemic-led acceleration of digital adoption also meant that existing policies or regulations are generally not catered to these relatively new developments, right? So, pre-COVID, the level of digital penetration or adoption is nowhere near. The levels that you're seeing in in europe or us pre-covid so as a result there wasn't uh, urgency to pretty much scrutinize the sector or int- introduce regulations or to for example protect workers or consumers right so if you look at vietnam for example versus a country like indonesia in vietnam there's i would say less political gridlock due to the lack of a democracy priorities there are quite different information control is actually vital to the Vietnamese Communist Party. And there's clearly an increased level of online activity by, by new users online and existing users that dedicate more of their time online. So for example, it recently further tightened its restrictions on social media platforms, mandating that companies must remove misinformation of false news within 24 hours. It was previously 48 hours, which was already, I would say, quite a tight deadline, and they further reduce it to 24 hours um, on requests lodged by the Vietnamese authorities. So similarly, the definition used to define misinformation and false news are quite broad and uh, pretty elastic, I would say. And uh, if you look at its criminal code, it pretty much outlaws any anti-state activities and anything deemed to undermine the party's monopoly on power. So if you look at Indonesia, uh, it's generally it has a much slower process for new regulations or new law. So for example, the Personal Data Protection Bill was only approved recently in September. This is after six years of, del- of debate and it's pretty much the only the fifth country in Southeast Asia to have a specific legislation on personal data protection after Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, and the Philippines. So it's quite difficult to believe that something as vital as personal data protection has only recently gained traction, with Thailand only starting to enforce it in June this year. However, from my observations, I do think that even for a country like Singapore, there seems to be, a, I would say, overall trend towards policies that lean towards national security and social stability. So for example, in Singapore, where I'm at, very recently, just a couple of days ago on November 9th, um the parliament passed a law requiring social media sites to block harmful content within hours. So if an online platform refuses to take down harmful content, the regulator, the Infocom Media Development Authority, can issue a direction to uh, internet access service providers to block access. Right? So, so in summary, um, there are many differences, but also quite similar in terms of trend converging towards national security, specifically with regards to, for example, content takedown policies. So, of course, broadly, the spirit of these policies are in line with comparable reforms in Europe and elsewhere globally in making companies responsible for their user safety. However, the proposed enforcement measures sometimes would go further than other jurisdictions.
0: Yeah, so I think there's. There's a, as you say, there's a lot of similarities there. So we've talked and we were talking about just before with the maybe it's not happening in the US, but certainly in the EU and the UK, there is this shift towards trying to reform laws or create new laws that would bring in content moderation rules. And that's clearly been replicated across uh, and pioneered in Southeast Asia as well. I think the issue there is the political systems and the emphasis on takedowns uh, is something that I suspect would need a lot more navigation from an international company in the region than perhaps their equivalents in in Europe, where um, where there'll be less pressure from governments to remove certain types of content. Certainly, compared to somewhere uh, like Vietnam, where the political situation is is totally different. Likewise, interesting to hear that we have uh, some we have the growth of uh, data protection uh, legislation in the region. It's slow. But it's going ahead. Uh, and that is something that is obviously happening in Europe and other parts of the world as well. So we are seeing certain consistencies between Southeast Asia, both within the region, but also between the region and Europe, and to a lesser extent, perhaps, uh, with the US. Um, so, look, we'll conclude there. Um, Nicholas, thank you very much. And Nagoma, uh, likewise. Uh, it's been a pleasure to take a tour both on the US uh, and the Southeast Asian uh, side of things. Um, as always, um, I just want to say to listeners on the line, if you or your business or your investment are exposed to the trends that we've talked about, so I suppose on the first half of the podcast, we were talking about essentially content moderation and the regulation of big tech. Um, and in the second half, we've talked about particular exposures uh, to burgeoning regulatory regimes in Southeast Asia. But please don't, just don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find the details uh, for Nick and for Agonma uh, on our website, um, which is www.global-council, or you can find that via the links, uh, in our podcast, uh, notes. Um, next week, uh, well, sorry, not next week in a couple of weeks time, uh, we're going to have our next in conversation episode, and we will have Elizabeth Denham, who is the former information commissioner of the UK. So one of the, uh, foremost uh, leaders and thinkers around issues related to data protection and privacy. And uh, if you're interested in receiving and listening to our In Conversation episodes, please do make sure that you're subscribed to the Top in Tech podcast feed on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify. So thank you very much for joining and uh, look forward to future episodes. Goodbye.